Joo, kyllä. Joo. Joo, siis ja tosiaan tämä on sitten siis kokonaan englanniksi, että tässä ei ole kukkausta. Jos se on samanlainen kuin aamupäivällä, niin se on huomattavasti yksinkertaisempaa englantia kuin vaikka... Oh yeah, stand over here on the lecture and six foot above contradiction. Um, <laughs> well... So as I say, this is a smaller and more integrate group than we had this morning, but thank you very much for coming. Uh, do uh, feel friendly towards one another uh, and feel free to gather together, because the way I'm going to structure this is to give some input from the front and then pause for a while whilst I put on a bit of background music that lasts a certain length of time, so I keep my timing, um, and give you opportunity to discuss amongst yourself or to meditate on your own, if you don't feel particularly friendly today, uh, you could meditate on your own or discuss with others around you um, how that particular bit of input uh, resonates with you, how that makes you feel uh, and why. And if we get through all the material and we've still got time, uh, we can have some questions, but uh, given the, the time slot that we have, I will probably fill it up with this alternating between me giving some input and again giving you opportunities to sort of reflect Uh, however you want to do that uh, on the material and I have uh, five sections but we may not make it through all of them this morning we only made it through the first four and that's fine I would rather that, um, that people follow me uh, and what I'm saying and if, um, since I'm, I'm doing this in English of course if, if I use a technical word that I forget to translate or, or something do just stick a hand up and ask me to, to clarify Uh, or uh, since we have Susanna here, we could ask her to, to clarify on my uh, behalf. Or somebody else. <laughs> not, not to press you into making you work this afternoon as well, of course, of course. So um, let's start with this issue. Are we uh, in relationship with God, his happy pets, or are we blessed humans? Uh, the artwork that I will keep recurrently coming back to is William Blake's set of pictures for the book of Job. Uh, so that links with the, the first lecture we had today. Alvin Plantinger notes that suffering and misfortune might constitute a problem for the person who believes in God. But the problem is not that his beliefs are logically or probabilistically incompatible. Uh, CF, uh, my lecture uh, earlier today. But he goes on, the theist might find a religious problem in evil, in the presence of his own suffering or that of somewhere near to him. He might find it difficult to maintain uh, the proper attitude towards God. He might be tempted to rebel against God or, or even to give up belief in God altogether. But this is a problem of a, of a different dimension. It's a problem that calls not for philosophical engagement but for pastoral care, for love. In other words, love expressing itself in practical care and concern rather than love expressing itself uh, through propositional uh, arguments. Love can, of course, do both, but there is a time and a place. William Lane Craig says, we tend naturally to assume that if God exists, then his purpose for human life is happiness in this world. God's role is to provide a comfortable environment for his human pets. But in the Christian view, this is false. We are not God's pets. And the goal of human life is the knowledge of God, which in the end will bring true and everlasting human fulfillment. Now it's interesting that he moves from using the word happiness to using the word fulfillment. Actually, the ancient sort of ancient Greek understanding of happiness was much more what we would use the English word fulfillment for. Aristotle, for example, talked about a flourishing of the human being, of eudaimonia, of the flourishing life, the good life. And that is to talk about an objective state of affairs. Whereas our modern use of the term happiness is often really just referring to a subjective feeling that we, we might have. So it is entirely possible, therefore, to be happy in the sense of objectively blessed, whilst at the same time being sad and having a subjective feeling of sadness. 
or pity or whatever. Those two can go together. <coughs> Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, said this. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Renewed in the image of Christ. For our light and momentary troubles. Now, just to interject, when St. Paul talks about light and momentary troubles, do remember, of course, that this is the guy who is used to crowds of people trying to stone him to death (laughs) for preaching the gospel, to being um, lashed by the authorities for speaking the name of Christ, uh, to going on dangerous sea voyages in order to spread the gospel as a missionary, and being shipwrecked and barely surviving. With that context in mind, let me read again. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So blessedness can coexist with sadness in this life, helping us to be content despite sorrow. You can look up Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12 when you have a moment. Paul uh, talks about learning the secret of being content in whatever circumstance, of, of recognizing his objected, objective blessedness in Christ and the hope that that brings to life here and now in the midst of present sufferings. But ultimately, of course, that blessedness in Christ will bring happiness in its, in its fullness, flourishing, but also, I imagine, a great deal of subjective uh, pleasure as well. Uh, joy is the serious business of heaven, uh, C.S. Lewis said. Uh, look at Revelation 21.1. So how does this portion of reflection make you feel and why? Let me give you a few moments to meditate or uh, talk amongst yourselves and then we'll move on. Existential, of course, is a word mainly associated with a bunch of French philosophers in Paris in the 1960s, sitting around in cafes, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and writing novels about the meaninglessness of existence. Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Camus, and so on. It's about the, the way we experience life, our existence, our being in the world. What is our existential perspective upon suffering? The atheist Paul Kurtz, who was a leading light of the American humanist tradition, argued that secular humanists need to confront directly the root existential questions to help people withstand the blows of outrageous fortune, such as illness, grief, suffering, conflict, failure, and death. But does secular humanism, does naturalism or materialism as a worldview provide you resources for actually saying something that is both comforting in the face of suffering and plausibly true to say? British atheist Peter Atkins famously said, we are children of chaos and the deep structure of change scientifically speaking is decay at root there is only corruption and the unstemmable tide of chaos gone is purpose all that is left 
is direction. See the difference between going somewhere for a purpose and going. This, he says, is the bleakness we have to accept as we peer deeply and dispassionately into the heart of the universe. Or at least that we have to accept if we look at it in a materialistic, naturalistic way. American atheist William Provine similarly said this, There are no gods, no purposes, no goal-directed forces. There is no life after death. There is no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning to life, and no free will for humans either. Michael Roos, in his recent book, Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, uses this ancient atheistic theme of, of how humanity needs to grow up. Grow up and stop believing in God, you know. Don't kid yourself, though, he says. If you become a non-believer, then you have left the security of your childhood. See how he's framing it rhetorically to make it seem like, well, it's the manly thing to do, anyway, is to leave behind that security, because it's growing up. There is no ultimate meaning, he says, and secular attempts to find a substitute simply aren't going to do it. It's gone forever. He says there may be no objective morality and no ultimate meaning, but, but, here is the consolation. Here I'm going to try and say something comforting. But nature has made us such that we can be kind and giving, enjoy life and find it worthwhile. Although under his breath, of course, he is then saying, although it isn't. Atheist Alex Rosenberg, in his recent The Atheist's Guide to Reality, has this kind of uh, atheistic creed at the beginning of his book. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? The same, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Are you kidding Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them. So Rosenberg says that individual human life is meaningless without purpose and without ultimate moral value. He says we need to face the fact that nihilism is true. Nihilism, the nothingism. Nothing matters. Nothing is worth anything. And he goes on to say, against the kind of thought of the French existentialists of the 60s, the idea of creating purpose in a world that can't have any. It's like trying to build a perpetual motion machine after you've discovered that nature has ruled them out. The only kind of purpose or meaning of your life that you can invent is a subjective purpose or meaning. You cannot invent an objective reason for your own being. Now, Rosenberg, having told us the harsh truth, now again, like like Ruth, moves on to trying to give us some comfort. But here's the best he can do, and he's serious about this. He says, if this seems hard to take, there's always Prozac. That is an anti-depression drug. Unless you think that that is some sort of off-the-cuff, witty remark that he just drops, towards the end of the book, he comes back to this theme, and he says... What should we scientific folk do when overcome by world weariness? Take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. That's the comfort he would offer you in the face of your suffering. Take some pills. 
Now, there's a place for taking pills. <laughs> okay? Uh, a number of years ago, I suffered from depression, and I took some pills, and I did some counselling, and I did some praying, and I did all sorts of things to overcome that. They have their place. But a worldview that reduces to, well, and then basically all you are is a bunch of chemicals reacting anyway. Um, that's all there really is in reality. Matter behaving according to the laws of physics. Uh, if that happens to give um, the chunk of matter that is you the illusion that you're sad, um, well, then take some um, chemical-altering substances and then you'll feel better. Is that really a deep enough answer uh, to the problem of apparent evil and suffering? Although, of course, in his worldview, there's no difference between good and bad. Does that really stand up in the face of the experience of suffering, or is that too simple by half? So I apologise for interrupting you, but to keep us on schedule. Let's turn to the question, is the pain worth the gain? Now, okay, that might be a bit of a simplistic way of boiling it down, but I think it raises some interesting issues. Is the pain worth the gain? Saying no in response to that question about human existence means saying that if humanity were threatened with extinction and it was within your power to save humanity, you ought not to save them. Can you think yourself into that frame of mind? We're saying that as well that it would have been better, really, if humanity had never come into existence. saying that the pain of existing is not worth the gain is saying to oneself and to one's fellow human beings that life isn't worth living. You're really pointing at other people, including the suffering person who comes to you, and you're saying, yeah, your life, is, life isn't worth living. It doesn't really fulfil Paul uh, Kurtz's requirement of saying something true and comforting, as it were, in the situation. It, he might think that it's true. It's certainly not comforting. But does that the fact that we feel awkward about that is that data that itself says something about the nature of what's true, of what's real? We'll come on to that issue when we look at the argument from desire in a few moments. In other words, Rejecting the idea that the pain is worth the gain is embracing nihilism. And we can think ourselves through this thought experiment quite usefully, I think, with a couple of clips from the Luke Besson-directed sci-fi film The Fifth Element, starring uh, Bruce Willis uh, in a string vest, of course, as most Bruce Willis films seem to feature him ending up in a string vest at some point. Think Die Hard. Um, and uh, the first film appearance, I think, of um, uh, Mila Jovovich. So the background plot of this, just in case you haven't seen the film, and I'm afraid I am going to kind of give away the ending uh, of this uh, in order to have our thought experiment. So um, leave the room now if you're thinking of watching this tonight. You know, <laughs> It's an interesting film. Um, humanity is threatened periodically with extinction by a vast force of dark evil that is just this mysterious thing in the movie. And once again in the far future humanity is threatened with extinction by the evil. But a group of aliens over the ages have been protecting humanity um, through a machine that they have left on planet Earth that is capable of repulsing the evil. To get the machine to work you have to bring together the four elements of earth, wind, air, and fire, crucially with the fifth element, 
the crucial working part of this machine, which surprisingly turns out to be Mila Jovovich, who is a, a genetically engineered super being, who is, as it were, at the sentient heart of the machine that protects humanity. Now, throughout the film, Jovovich's character, Lilu, is learning about human existence. She's a kind of naive, abroad figure. And uh, as part of her education, she's going through the on-ship computer encyclopedia. And in in a crucial bit of the film, she comes across a really significant entry uh, in that encyclopedia. And I'd like to show you the scene where she discovers about war. From that point on in the film, the fifth element gives up on saving humanity. It's as if her alien creators have created this crucial part of the humanity-saving device to only save humanity if we're worth saving. Well, Bruce Willis and his friends um, get into the, uh, the ancient pyramid in Egypt where the uh, rest of the machine is housed, they've discovered. They bring Lilu, the fifth element, into the machine and they want her to save humanity as the dark evil force gets ever closer to planet Earth. And the humans are powerless to save themselves. And the president of Earth, you'll see, uh, the black guy with his hands clasped in desperation, perhaps in prayer, who knows, as humanity's doom comes upon it seconds away. Will the fifth element save humanity or not? And so, of course, the whole cinema audience groan in disbelief. Oh, no, they think to themselves. She saved humanity. What a terrible ending. All of that suffering and pain is just going to continue and it's just not worth it. Oh, no, that wasn't how audiences reacted, isn't it? You know, audiences reacted, oh, good, the story had a happy ending. As it seems, the creators of the fifth element have designed her such that, although she'll only save humanity if they're worth saving, despite what she's learned about the cruelty and evil we perpetrate on each other, She will save us if only she can experience love from a human being. Yes, yes, says Dallas Willard. That that, that is, not Dallas Willard, that's a Christian philosopher. Um, Bruce Willis. That's a very good example. Love is worth saving. So we have this deeply held intuition, or properly basic belief, that the existence of humans is worthwhile. And perhaps that shows that it's not at all irrational um, to say that although we don't have a complete understanding of precisely why human existence is worthwhile in the end, that nonetheless we are rational to believe that our existence is worthwhile in the end. Indeed, recognising the value of human life and the value of things our lives permit to exist means making, if you like, the unselfish decision that we'd rather the universe contain the kind of value we embody and permit even if that means our accepting suffering. Uh, When I say accepting, not going along with, acquiescing in. 
That selfishness on our part might itself be one of those values that's permitted by human existence that justifies our existence. I was interested to see this quote from the um, author Roger Gottlieb in in his recent book on spirituality, what it is and why it matters. Now, he's a non-Christian writer on this subject coming from a sort of new agey Buddhist kind of perspective. But this quote was one that resonated with me. And he said, uh, asking really, is the ability to maintain a sense that life matters despite the world's pain the fundamental spiritual virtue in the sense that it makes all the others possible? Without it, we may not be able to manifest the other virtues very well or for very long. In in biblical theological terminology, he's he's talking about the the virtue of hope. How does this make you feel and why? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Briefly, to have a a little bit more of a, a philosophical section, the argument from desire is an argument that's been intriguing me of late. And... um, This argument starts from the existence of various desires that are natural or innate to the human condition that are uh, in the way of these kind of existential desires. Um, What C.S. Lewis talked about in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, Um, our desire for objective value, for purpose, for meaning in life, for there to be some sort of ultimate justice, Uh, for there to be a sense of forgiveness for our sins, for there to be a heaven, and so on. Now, we have these desires, I think, but reality, of course, either can or cannot answer them, satisfy those desires. Lewis himself counted that the thirst for immortality is amongst those desires, but various non-Christian writers um, note these kind of desires. So Anthony O'Hare, who's an agnostic philosopher in Britain, talks about the perfection we long for in some other world. Charles Taylor notes our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil. Roger Scruton talks about those ancient yearnings for something else, for a homecoming to our true community. And he talks particularly about the way in which beauty that seems to point us beyond this world to a kingdom of ends in which our immortal longings are finally answered. Now, the more of these kind of existential desires we had that we believed were in vain, that reality would never answer, could never answer, the more absurd we would think our existence, to borrow a phrase from the existentialists, such that Lewis thought that a belief in naturalism actually inevitably generates a disharmony between the desires of our hearts and reality, nature. Francis Schaeffer, of course, famously explored what he called the existential line of despair Uh, that's generated when uh, a naturalistic worldview ends up reducing the reality of man, what he called the mannishness of man, so that it will fit within materialist categories. Philosopher Jeffrey Gordon concludes that if the universe lacks purpose, man is a creature with passions remarkably inappropriate to the universe in which he's immersed. And faced with this disharmony, Thomas Morris ponders... Are our deepest yearnings and desires a good guide to the deepest truths about existence? Or could some of them be, by contrast, totally out of joint with reality? I think the natural response to that question assumes the, the rational priority of trust. This is part of a general theme in the theory of knowledge recently, that many philosophers will say that the the rational thing to do when going about knowing anything is to begin with trust and only to move over to to distrust or scepticism 
when you have a good reason for being sceptical, such that you don't really need a good reason to be trusting. Trust is, if you like, the default position. Because if you take scepticism as the default position, it, it, it becomes impossible to escape from that scepticism. Because of any reason or argument or evidence anyone gives you to try and move you out of your scepticism, you will, of course, be automatically sceptical about that evidence, those arguments, and so on. Um, And if someone then tries to give you arguments for not being sceptical about the first set of arguments, well, then you'll automatically be sceptical about the second set of arguments, and so on. So you're kind of digging yourself into an infinitely deep pit of despair from which you can never be rescued. So I would say that the burden of proof is on the sceptic, is on the nihilist. So we can mount an, an argument from desire that might go something like this. Given that you have human beings with these, these innate natural desires for things like truth, goodness, beauty, justice, meaning, purpose, etc., our existence would be absurd to the extent that it is impossible in reality for any human being to ever have those existential desires satisfied by reality. And we do indeed have those kind of desires. Indeed, they seem to be often the kind of desires that would be impossible to satisfy unless there is a God. As we saw in the moral argument, it's impossible for there to be objective moral values unless there's a God. So it's impossible for life to be really meaningful and worthwhile unless there's a God. It's impossible for life to have an objective purpose if it doesn't have a creator who can intend it for a reason. And so on. So, unless God exists, human existence is absurd. Now, in saying this, you'll notice we're simply agreeing with a lot of the atheist quotations about the implications of their worldview that we looked at earlier. But, of course, if we are in a position to add the information that God does exist, well, that changes the whole perspective and shows us that human existence isn't absurd, that at least on a theistic view of things, it's, it's sensible to think that human life is not absurd. I'll put it another way, to use a, a quote from Job 3.23, the rhetorical question is put, why is a man allowed to be born if God is only going to give him a hopeless life of uselessness and frustration? Well, the assumed answer seems to be that, of course, God would not allow such an absurdity if there is a God. But there is a God, and therefore human life is not doomed to frustration and uselessness. But perhaps this is a little bit more interesting from an apologetic point of view. This is the the same argument, in a sense, that we just had, but we've swapped around... Premises four and five. So instead of the argument including the information that God exists, it now builds up to the conclusion that God exists. So this is now an argument for God from the innate existential desires of human beings. So we get to the same point as before of saying, unless God exists, the existence of human beings is absurd. But on the kind of basis that we had in looking at those, those film clips and our intuitions about reality, we could simply argue that for the existence of human beings is not absurd. Well, but if that's true, it follows that God exists since he is a precondition of human life not being absurd. So now we have an argument for God uh, from the desires of the heart that would otherwise be frustrated in a naturalistic universe. So the naturalists seem to come in and, as Schaefer says, reduce the mannishness of man and say, all these desires you have for meaning and purpose and so on, ultimately you just need to grow up and realise that that's all a fantasy. But maybe that's too easy a dismissal of those desires. Do those desires actually 
demand and deserve to be treated as part of the data of reality to be explained. And naturalism, materialism, ultimately just ends up explaining them away, riding roughshod over them in order to fit human experience into its own preconceived notion of reality. Whereas if you take those desires seriously and follow the evidence where it seems to point, actually it points away from naturalism and towards God. Another way of putting it, there are several ways of putting it, um, but another way, you can think about this. You can make the claim that, that nature makes no type or few types of natural human desires in vain. So there is the desire for food. Now, does that mean that we should be sceptical about the existence of food? <laughs> now, Freud made that kind of move in saying that people seem to have this innate desire for God as a kind of father figure who will you know, guarantee that everything could be all right in the end. Well, that's why we should be sceptical of God, because people want there to be a God, so we should doubt it. But that is a bit like saying people seem to desire food, so we should be sceptical about the existence of food because, well, people want to believe in food, don't they? Because <laughs> now, Actually, it seems to be that the desire for food is a pretty good indicator that there's probably food around somewhere. Now, of course, my individual token, my individual example of that desire for food might be frustrated. I might die of starvation. So this isn't working at that level of individual tokens of the desires, but despite the fact that I might die of starvation, the general rule seems to hold in that case that that type of desire indicates the existence of a possible fulfilment. Might that not also be the case with these existential Desires. If nature makes no type, or at least few types of natural human desires in vain, and we have one or more natural desires that would be in vain unless God exists, unless, in broader terms, there's the possibility of a relationship with God in heaven, as it were, well then it would follow that that kind of reality is at least in principle achievable. It doesn't prove that I will get to heaven, but it might prove that heaven is a possibility and that since God is a precondition of those fulfilled desires, ultimately he must exist and that therefore God at least probably exists. Back to the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 18-23. He talks about considering our present sufferings as not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, the children of God, to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. Not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it. In hope. The will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. I'd like to share with you a piece of music. I apologise if it's not your particular musical taste, but I think it makes some interesting and significant points. It's a song from a band called Transatlantic, a prog rock group, and their album The Whirlwind. Now they're they're not a Christian band as such, but the band leader is a Christian. And sometimes Christian themes come through their music, 
And obviously the members of the band are quite interested in sort of spiritual things generally, and there's some interesting stories there. But there's a track on Transatlantic written by Neil Morse, that the other guys were clearly happy to have on the album, called Rose-Coloured Glasses. The idea of looking through rose-coloured spectacles that give a, a sort of happy tint to everything, whether or not it's happy. A sort of false hope is the, the uh, illustration. And it's written by Neil Morse, who's the, the singer and the keyboard player in the band, and I'll show you the, a, a clip from a concert where they're playing this track in a moment. And it's talking about the recent death of Neil's father. It's a very heartfelt track. And I'd like to just read the lyrics for you, and you'll see various biblical allusions there. And then I will play um, the track from the concert because, of course, this is written as a song. So you don't get the full depth of the meaning of the lyrics if you abstract it from the music because they're intended to go with the music. Um, Song lyrics are not just a poem. They're a poem that's intended to have part of its meaning uh, given by the music, at least if it's a good piece of music, and I think this is. So he says, long ago, talking about father, he saw the light of day, and then the wind, it blew the man away. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but I believe the man is going home. Long ago, he set the ship aright, And then he sailed away into the night. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but I believe the man is going home. And I know that we are more than dust and ashes. And one day we will know what we have known. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses. But as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But now we see through glass. When the ending came, I said goodbye. And I hoped to meet him on the other side. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses. But I believe we have the greatest hope And I'll sing this as we're scattering the ashes. I believe the man has gone back home. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering. And I don't believe I wear rose-coloured glasses, but as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But now we see through glass. This world is not our home. You can live like a rolling stone, but you cannot escape with your life. We seek a city on fire with the heart of a child's desire. We will cross that bridge and enter into life. Real life. And then there's a fantastic guitar solo by the Swedish guitarist Ronnie Stolt. But on the dark side, there are times of suffering, but as the pages turn, one day we'll learn of everything. But through the dark years, there are tears and suffering. But as the pages turn, one day we'll burn like lightning in that city in the sky. Revelation 21. So here, for the full uh, depth of meaning, uh, meditate upon this. uh, A very Christian expression of hope in the face of suffering. An acknowledgement of the reality and the depth of suffering here and now is a very Pauline. And also note that this is an ostensibly non-Christian band playing a concert, of course, therefore to a mainly non-Christian audience. And the way in which a work of art clearly gives this non-Christian audience an experience of what it is like to have a religious worldview for a moment. And see how this reacts with the audience. Neil Morse is coming next summer here. Is he? Thank you. So Ian Morse, uh, uh, Neil Morse is coming to Finland next summer. Yes. Great. Do you catch him? See the guy there giving thanks to God for the drumsticks from uh, Mike Portney as well. Um, yeah, I think what Neil Morse manages to do through that music is for those who. who 
get that kind of music is he gives them a transcendent religious experience in the midst of a rock concert. Um, and the fact that he can do that is one of the reasons why he's uh, so successful within his field and, and, and such a, a brilliant uh, Christian uh, artiste. I'm going to just skip over this and put it finally in the context of, of Christ and the cross and the resurrection. A number of years ago, it was my privilege to sit down with um, Dr. Gary Habermas, uh, who, if you haven't heard of him, is an American Christian scholar uh, who um, really uh, blazed a path in resurrection apologetics. He did his PhD uh, on the resurrection and was one of the first people, not the first person, to use what's called the so-called minimal facts approach to the resurrection, where you only use the data that liberal sceptical scholars will allow using their kind of historical criteria for things that, even though you might think the Gospels are generally unreliable, you think, well, I've got some criteria that I can apply that I can at least sift out some reliable bits of information. So he uses only the information that the sceptics will allow and uses that information to build his case for the resurrection of Jesus as the best explanation of that data. It's the same kind of argument that folks like William Lane Craig uh, use, uh, but it was a path, and now now it's Mike Lacona as well, his recent very thick book on the resurrection. Mike Lacona um, worked closely with Gary Habermas, and Habermas was the one who blazed the trail here. So uh, I had an opportunity to sit down and do some on-camera on interviewing with Habermas, and we talked about the resurrection and this and that evidence and so on. But I, I knew from reading that uh, Habermas has applied this within this whole question of, of Christian life and also of, of facing suffering uh, and talks uh, in a very personal way to him uh, about the death of his first wife to character. So I left this to the end of the interview because I was aware that this is a very personal issue for him rather than just a sort of abstract academic issue and you can, you can see that in, in his eyes. But he was gracious enough to talk at some little length about applying his historical evidence for the resurrection and what that's meant to him at a personal level in facing the death of his wife. Uh, and I think this, again, is just a, a brilliant insight into the right Christian attitude towards suffering in life here and now that really hammers home the point that at the existential level, at least, and that's the level we're addressing at the existential level, the Christian worldview gives you resources to face and handle evil and suffering here and now, whereas the materialist, secular humanist worldview does really quite the opposite, as we've seen. So we will watch this, and I will, I will simply end with this. Uh, there's nothing really that I could add to what Habermas says. Evidence, 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 and talk about how the resurrection is applied to everyday life. I mean, to give you for me, uh, certainly the most central illustration, I refer to my uh, wife, Debbie, and her death in 1995 to stomach cancer. And we brought her home from the hospital, and she was uh, up in the room sleeping for most of the day, and I had a child monitor up there, and I went out to sit on the porch, and I kind of had a discussion with the Lord, a make-believe discussion, what would the Lord say? And the discussion always went something like this. Uh, Lord, uh, Debbie's only 43 years old. I have these young children, and you did give me ministry. How can I take care of the kids and the clothes and the food? And, the, and Lord, while I'm on this subject, why is Deb dying? And I pictured the Lord saying back to me, uh, Gary, you know, we've got something in common. I watched my son die. Now, at the time, I thought the only kinds of people who could share my pain, so to speak, were those who lost a spouse or a child. So this was a especially relevant response that I imagined God saying. And so when he said, I watched my son die, this sort of, I imagined it sort of shocking me, you know, sort of setting me back a little bit. And I'd say, hmm, yes, you did, didn't you? And he'd say, and so the father, so he, he kind of moves into that gap, and God says, 
didn't rescue him from the cross, did I? Oh, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. You know, Gary died. And I see what's coming, so I zip ahead and I picture my wife died. I'm thinking, I, I can't deal with this. And he keeps coming. And he says, Gary, I watched my son die. Do you expect better treatment than my son received? Lord, I'm not worthy. I, no, Lord, you understand I'm just hurting. I'm just hurting. He said, Gary, I understand. I watched my son die. And here's my promise. And I think generally, I think this is the promise in Scripture. I think generally God does not claim to take us from things. I think the claims, repeated claims in Scripture, our favorite verses, is to hold our hand through suffering. And he says, I was there for my son. Into your hands I commit my spirit, and I'll be with you. And that crushed me because I realized if this comes out, that Debbie's going to die. And she did. So we kept talking. And Lord said, One more thing. What kind of a world is this? I said, I, I guess a world where you raised your son from the dead. What does that mean? Well, come on, Lord. Was my, that was 30 AD. This is 1995. Why? He says, Gary, you're burning the issue. Let's go back to my question. What kind of a world is this? So you know where you raised your... But, but Lord, Debbie's up there, Gary. And at this point, I picture him reaching down and sort of grabbing the, my shirt collars and pulling me up close. And he says something like this. I know you've only got a PhD, so I'm going to say this real slowly. Read my lips. If this is a world where I raised my son from the dead, it's the same world in 30 AD as it is in 1995. The world is the same. It's a world where I'll hold your hand through suffering, and one day you'll be together. As a card that was sent to me that was most touching, I couldn't even repeat this card for probably a year. The card said, can you imagine what it will be like when one day you are in heaven and you'll be able to walk with your wife through the heavenly gardens, walking hand in hand? And I was unprepared for the Lord's answer, and I said, Lord, what are you saying to me? And he said, simple. I watched my son die. Do you expect better? No, Lord. What kind of a world is it? It's a world where you raise people from the dead. Hang in there. I'm going to be with you, but I'm not taking you from this one. And it crushed me. But that was an application of resurrection to my present needs. He hadn't promised to take me from, but he promised to hold my hand through. And it was strictly because of the hope of resurrection that we have a truth like St. Paul's, where he says we mourn, but not as those without hope. And I realized that mourning with hope, the hope of heaven, is way better than mourning without hope. And as painful as the lesson was, that's a lesson we learned from the resurrection of Jesus.